their experience, strength, and hope with you. With you. And the uh, first one is Dale. I'm Dell, and I'm an alcoholic. You know, that was the hardest damn thing for me to say for quite a few years, even going to AA, because to me, an alcoholic was a skid row booming and immoral derelict. And I wasn't a skid row booming. I didn't think I was a derelict. But I had a little trouble even believing I had a problem. I started drinking about the age of five in the island of Barbados, where I was born and where my heritage is from, is where rum was invented. And at that time, you could buy a fifth of rum for 24 cents. That rum today is 18, 15, 18 dollars a fifth. And my sister got married when I was about five or six, uh, two days after my birthday, and I thought it was a celebration of my birthday, so I stole some of the rum that they had and got high and got obnoxious and got my ass whipped and first time I got drunk age of five after that I liked it I used to steal it anytime I could find it around the house and we always had some I put it in my milk at the age of eight I went to a movie and bought a pint uh, in Barbados if you can reach the county you can buy it there's no age limit that's where rum was invented, by the way. And if you don't know where Barbados is, it's down in the West Indies. And it was settled by the same people as Boston and Virginia. And I come from the original stock. Anyhow, <coughs> this uh, disease of alcoholism permeated my entire family. My father was a, turned to be a semi-preacher. He didn't drink, but his brothers did and his sister did. And I think he used to do before he got religion and my mother family all drank and when she went broke in the depression she really started to drink so I had that heritage and I had to live up to it of course <laughs> but uh, we also had a little disease called TB that started my family in 1929 and my mother kept him at home her first son and didn't realize how contagious it was. <clears throat> and it went down the family from one brother to the next. And by the age of 13, five of my brothers and sisters had died of TB. And there was a friend visiting from Panama. Uh, his mother was renting one of our apartments. And he offered to have me as a live with him in Panama. And... Uh, my mother agreed, so I moved to Panama at the age of 13. And <clears throat> I was a Barbadian. Well, in Panama, it wasn't built by the Americans. It was built by West Indian Negroes from uh, Jamaica. And Jamaican Negroes are hard to control, so they went to Barbados and got the Barbadian Negroes to uh, supervise the construction while the engineering and the Big shots were Americans. You couldn't get the Panamanians to work anymore. You can the Comanches. You're part Indian, so excuse me. <laughs> uh, you understand what I mean as far as. So I was the first white uh, West Indian I saw in Panama, and I couldn't I never heard a word of Spanish until I moved there. So I couldn't speak Spanish. I wasn't American. I wasn't allowed to go to the 
couldn't go to American school. It was markedly segregated down there. And they didn't want me to go to the black school, so I had to get the governor's permission to go to the American school. And during the Depression, it was $16 a month for education in the 30s. Well, he used to say that was kind of hard thing to do, but I was able to do it, and I couldn't uh, catch up with the American high school kids, so I almost flunked out, but I ended up as valedictorian through hard work and so forth. But during the junior, senior year, with my good grades, uh, I was able to make a living and pay the $16 a month by buying bananas for the Chiquita Banana Company in Panama, United Fruit Company. So I never saw a banana tree in Barbados. They only have sugar cane, they have banana trees now. But uh, <clears throat> I learned from the Jamaicans how to buy a banana, six foot, eight foot, seven foot bunch, that sound that you hear sometimes in Calypso. So I was smart enough to learn how to do it, and that's how come I I was able to pay that $16 a month. Anyhow, uh, after graduation, as valedictorian, some of these dumb boys in school was able to get a construction job building the Third Canal at that time, right about the time of the war in 1941. And I decided to go out to get a job there because they're paying a dollar and a quarter for a roofer. But I being a West Indian, they paid me 22 But I took the job and stayed sober. <clears throat> About six months into the job, I gradually worked my way up to be assistant manager. But uh, I went downtown, and I met one of my high school buddies. By the way, after we bought the bananas, we used to go out skinny dipping in this uh, a boat that one of them had that I had hired to help buy the bananas, and in front of the high school and showed off, but they always took my word that we were working because I was such a good student. Anyhow, we, when I, six months in there, when I working in, as a construction manager, office manager by that time, I met him downtown. And he said, you don't drink anymore, do you? I said, nope. He said, I always could out drink you, and I said, no, you can't. So we had a little bet. And the bet was, get a waitress to bring us two beers, and then go get another two beers. And when she comes back with the other two beers, we have to juggle out those two beers. And then she goes to get another two beers. So after 24, 25 beers, he passed out, and I said, I won! So I went downtown and saw some of the other construction workers and told them that I had done it, didn't believe it. And I said, buy me 24 more, and I'll show you. Well, that's the first time I passed out. And if you don't believe me, I had such a tolerance of alcohol. Uh, towards the end of my drinking days, I would buy $22.5 worth of alcohol at the liquor store on Monday and on Friday. Uh, if you're in business by yourself, uh, you don't have to itemize anything on the $25. That's the reason for the 
But in 1970, that would have bought about approximately five, six fifths, uh, $25, $22.50. They were about $3.50 a bottle, about five fifths. So I was drinking approximately 10 fifths a week and working steadily, never drank before breakfast or uh, before I go to work. And I had my own office as a pediatrician. And I never passed out. I had a tolerance uh, where I could drink two fifths a night. Uh, actually, I drank like a gentleman. I drank two martinis after the last patient while I make my telephone calls. One, these are cans of martinis, if you remember, uh, eight ounces each. So I drink a pint of martinis. I make my phone calls on my way home, drink another pint. And then when I got home, I had two old fashions, 12 ounce glasses, Texas glasses. And then after supper, I have a pint of brandy. And that was a gentleman's way of drinking in 1970. I had some friends who we asked to party with. And one of them said, Dale, why don't you go to AA? And I said, what for? He said, well, you find a friend there. Well, in the interim, I had had friends said, Dale, why don't you do this and so forth. One of them uh, was a priest that asked me to come down to Houston where they had a big charismatic movement and I was always pretty religious and go to church very faithfully. And I went down to Houston and stayed in the commune and became baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues with not my cup of tea. But I heard these people that were doing it, and I knew they were sincere. And I couldn't understand how they could understand their speaking in tongues and what it meant. I bring that up because after I, two weeks down there, I came back to Lawton and decided, for a while I was planning to go into missionary work, but I came back to Lawton and continued in pediatrics and became kind of a half-ass drunken doctor. But when this fellow, a lawyer, suggested I go to AA and find a buddy, I said, you know, that may be a good idea. Uh, these guys help each other all the time in AA. I had moonlighted as an emergency room doctor, and you bring these drunks in on Saturday weekend, and you're always with another alcoholic, he called him his buddy. And of course, the, I admit the drunk to the, the hospital, and the next day I'd go by and tell you how he was doing, and his buddy be sitting next to him. So I figured that's what a buddy in the A was. When you get drunk, I'll take care of you, and when you get drunk, you take care of me. So I decided I would try that because in the interim, I've been picked up a few times for driving left to center, never for being drunk. One time I, they tested my breath, and it was 0.4, but I was sober. And it's hard to believe. I thought, he didn't believe it, so he took me downtown and retested me again. It was 0.38, so they kept me overnight. And then every so often, the wife would call the police when I got bombastic with her, and they throw me in jail another time or two. I was just annoying as hell, you know. I was a nice guy. 
keep ending up in the pokey. So I decided maybe it's about time I go find this buddy, okay? And how did I go to AA? I didn't know anybody in AA. I had any, no, absolutely no idea what it was all about. I never read the book, didn't even know there was a book. But my wife, uh, by the way, I've been through a few of those, you know. Uh, at that time, seemed to know everybody that was in the club, and she gave me a, a, a list. One of them was uh, working out at Fort Sill as a mechanic, air conditioning man, really. And I thought, well, I'd rather use him than any of the lawyers or doctors in town or anybody, businessmen, because we don't associate. I just bring him home and uh, stay with him. And he came and he, he talked about, do I believe in God? And here I was a guy that had been going to church every day and uh, baptizing the Holy Spirit and uh, so very religious. Of course I do. And I wondered what the hell he was talking about. So he agreed to take me to my first AA meeting on a Monday. It was a discussion group. And I had a strange feeling. I feel like these damn drunks were talking with the words of God. And this is what uh, tongues is all about, but it's in English. And I couldn't uh, interpret that. But I was wondering. This is interesting. The things they said and the things they did, they seemed to be so damn honest. They were laborers, sergeants, uh, lawyer, uh, colonel, a couple of whores, and other ladies. And I'm not being derogatory, these are who they were. Talking like that, and I couldn't believe it. You know, it kind of hit me. And on the way home, I had a very pleasant feeling. And uh, the gentleman said, would you like to come back tomorrow? Uh, we have a meeting around ourselves where somebody gets up and gives their story. I said, yes, I would. So he picked me up, and they had this old sergeant that was a skid row drunk that had gotten sober and was in a halfway house that somebody had started there. The whore, madam, started a halfway house after she got sober. She was able to pull strings, and she knew all the businessmen in town. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they help her start a halfway house for men. Anyhow, uh, he uh, gave this story, and I laughed. I never had such a beautiful time because I could identify with his story. And especially, I'll give you an example. He said he got drunk and his wife was raising hell. He had bought a bottle of perfume. And she made him so mad, he threw the bottle of perfume at her, she moved and it hit the mirror and broke it. And I did the same damn thing. <laughs> now you talk about being identified. You know, and another thing about going to the John in the Army in World War II. Anyhow, I thought this was interesting. Would you believe I never had a drink since then? I don't know what happened. And I started studying the 12 steps. We had a 12-step study group on Mondays. And I attended that every Monday without fail.
one of these 12 steps. Here I am, you know, big doctor, all kinds of honors. Thought I knew everything, you know. But this fascinated me. 12 steps. Of course, I had no trouble with them. But I couldn't understand exactly what they all meant, but I kept going over it, you know. After a year, two or three or four, I read that book so often, The Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. And I, we discussed it in a group. I got started an idea of who God was. God is who you depend on. God is who you worship. God is who you love. God is who you try to please. I started questioning myself. Who do I try to please? People said I love those kids, and I said, how could I love those brats that pee on me and never thank me, cry when they see me, and never want to see me again, never say thanks as a pediatrician. And I love them. I started a question, what is love? How do you love somebody? I didn't think I was worth a damn, you know? That's one of the reasons I was a pediatrician, because I didn't think I could compete with older people. My intelligence was kind of screwed up. So who is love? What is love? God is love. And I kept comparing the 12 steps with my Christian religion to be sure it wasn't a cult. The Jones's problem in Demerara and so forth. And it met every qualification, the 12 steps. And then I had some insight, such as step four. Everybody always give a, you know, the sinning they did. Well, frankly, between you and I, when I did some sinning, like adultery, I slept like an angel. I didn't have any reason to go out and get drunk. But when I did something good and didn't get a pat on my back, I got angry and got drunk. So my sinning made me feel good, and my goody made me feel bad. So I started looking at four a little different. It says moral inventory. Huh. Not immoral. Moral inventory. What is that? So I realized that I was a doctor because I didn't think people would read unless I was well-educated and have that beautiful degree. I was a pediatrician because I didn't think I could get along with adults. I was a cheap doctor because I didn't think I was worth much. I gave a lot of discounts. caused me trouble in times to come in my profiling. It caused me trouble financially. I was trying to impress people because I didn't like me. I didn't think I was worth a damn. But give me a couple of drinks and I could dance better, sing better, talk better, know better. And I was very dependent on alcoholism because of my goody works. Step four, if I really couldn't love somebody unless I know them, you can't love anybody unless you know them. Step four, we wear a mask so people don't know who we are. Nobody thinks you all are a bunch of drunks because you don't look like one. 
You don't act like one. And you don't talk like one. We have a mask. And it's very hard to love somebody you don't know. So when somebody gets up in his podium and talks how much they have suffered, like Jim this morning, you can't help but love that guy. He really gave a story, much better than I could ever do. Step four, take off your mask. Let people love you. And then, who do I try to please? I'm a pediatrician, you know. I said, I wonder who that kid tries to please. And I started looking at children of the spiritual development of a child. Now, when I was a pediatrician uh, and taking the boards, one of the things that slipped up to us and made a lot of problems was the neurological development of the child. When they started using the pincers and when they started to walk and everybody was knowing about the diseases but they didn't study this development phenomena. And no one has ever talked about the spiritual development of the child. So I started looking at that. Who is the child of God of a three-month-old baby? Who does he worship? His mother. Who does he love? His mother. Who does he try to please? His mother. Who does he depend on? His mother. Who is his God? His mother. Then I started looking at the five months. It was either the mother or the daddy. And at nine months, the brother, the father, the grandmother. And at one year, the dramatic change. He only wants to please himself. He only loves himself. He only depends on himself. He doesn't want anybody to feed him or carry him. Who's his God? Himself. You know, I look at people and say they're still in the one year of spiritual development, trying to please themselves, worship themselves, love themselves, depend on themselves, and not on God. And I started studying it a little bit more. I started reviewing the literature. Not a thing was ever written about children's spiritual development. I wrote it up as best as I could. <laughs> Nobody will accept it in the medical literature. But I went ahead and had it copyrighted in case you'd like to know. And that was in 1989 or 80, someplace like that. Well, that was one of the things in spiritual development that I thought you might be interested in. But uh, that wasn't the only thing I did in AA. About that time, <clears throat> this whore that had started, and she, by the way, I nominated her as an outstanding citizen of Oklahoma, but of course she wasn't accepted because of her past, but I think she did more for people than anybody I know in town. And uh, she was mad because they had a halfway house for men and not for women. And she wanted me to help her start a halfway house for females. And again, she knew everybody who had what strings they can pull. And there was a lady who was a social worker that had been married twice to different bankers. And uh, they died and left her all this money. And she had no children. So she left it for wayward children. 
she knew about the will. So she said, I'm going to move in that house if you'll help me, Dell, and have a halfway house for women. Her husband, to be, had started a halfway house for men with this lady's assistance, which is called Miller Manor, from her name. Anyhow, she uh, wanted to start, uh, he wanted to start a, a treatment program uh, and a detox center because he was sick and tired of alcoholics being picked up and taken to jail to clean the crappers in the jail. And he heard about the law that this was not uh, to be anymore. So he wanted to start a halfway house so the police can dump the drunks at this halfway house, but they had to have a doctor. So I was asked to be, and I started to another attitude how do I know what God wants me to do? Turn my will over to God. How do I know? Because I don't hear no voices. Again, in the studying of the 12 steps, different things came. And I had made myself that if you ask me to do something, I guess that's what God wanted me to do, not what I wanted to do. And I keep using that even now. So he asked me to be the doctor, and I volunteered. So we started a non-medical detox in Lawton, Oklahoma in 74 when the law was passed that you couldn't put a drunk in jail. And I believe that was the very first one, non-medical detox. <coughs> and I started a halfway house for females, which I believe is the very first one too. So I'm not tooting my horn. This is what AA did for me and what sobriety did for me, where I directed my efforts for the, the good of alcoholics. I have continued to take care of alcoholics since 1974, actually 72, and finally in 70, in 85, uh, a priest and a PhD uh, psychologist wanted to start a program at the Tyler Mental Health Center in Lawton, Oklahoma, and they wanted me to do it. That meant giving up my pediatric practice, which I have had my heart and soul into. And I said, God, how do I know if that's what you want me to do? Even though a priest told me I would, and her, his wife did. And by the way, I'm Episcopalian. So it's an Episcopalian priest, not a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, <clears throat> so I said, I have two secretaries and two nurses. If they agree and say that's what I should do, then I'll do it. So I called them into my office and I told them if they did this, they would lose their job and have to find elsewhere. Would you believe all four of them said, Dell, that's what you should do? I couldn't believe it. I almost cried. Still, they, they, uh, I can't believe it. And they would give up their job for me to go and be an addictionist. It turned out they got better jobs after that. They're much better jobs. <laughs> and I've been medical director and addictionist at Talifair. I still take care of the drunks as best as I can, even though I'm semi-retired. 
I'm uh, getting up in years. I'm almost 80. I'm semi-retired, but I'm still working, doing God's will. Thank you. Remind me of a story. <laughs> I'm a, I'm from Okarchi, and that the, that name means Oklahoma, Arapaho, and Cheyenne, which was right next to the Cheyenne Arapaho Reservation. And when I moved to El Reno, I bought a lot to build a home north of El Reno. It's right across the street from the reservation. Now I have a casino with lights flashing in my house. <laughs> but here, one winter day, I'm driving into town, and here's this Indian walking along. It was snowing, and he was freezing, and so I pull over and pick him up, and. He was glad to get in the warm car, and he looks at me, and he says, Are you Indian? <laughs> he thought only an Indian would stop and pick him up. But anyway, I have a swimming pool and a bunch of grandkids, and uh, I, our heritage, uh, I, I can't, well, anyway, I won't go into all that. But so anyway, our next speaker is uh, Steve. Good morning. My name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. I want to thank the committee for asking me to speak tonight, a day. I guess it's daytime outside. The, um, I always like to speak to a group of doctors because I don't have to worry about shocking anybody with some of my story. The, um, my sobriety date is September the 3rd, 1980. I was born into a family of, uh, my father was an alcoholic. I was the oldest of four children. Uh, at age 15, I was told by Dr. Burnell Fox when my father was in treatment at the Georgian Clinic in Georgia that uh, if I drank, I'd probably become an alcoholic. And I made a commitment at that time, not made a decision at that time not to drink and not to, and I also made a decision to become a physician. And at age 25, I had not drank and I had become a physician. I graduated from Emory Medical School to the internship in medicine, uh, the Emory VA Hospital. Uh, spent two years in Albuquerque working at uh, TB Indian Hospital. And it was actually while I was out there in 64-66 uh, that I had my first drink of alcohol. I'd taken a few sleeping pills uh, during med school, but that was about the extent of my drugs. So I still did not want to be like my father, did not want to drink alcohol. And um, went back to um, Atlanta, started a re residency in OBGYN at um, Georgia Baptist Hospital in Atlanta. And during that first two years of that residency, I uh, moonlighted most of the time because I was trying. In the meantime, I'd gotten married. I had three children, and you know, some people would say I'd reproduced my family of origin. I, you know, had gone from a family with an alcoholic and three siblings, and I was married to an alcoholic and drug addict uh, with three children. I really did not know she was an alcoholic and drug addict. I just thought she was crazy. Um, and uh, still, well, I need to clean that up a little bit. She's I'm still having that's still in uh, being evaluated. Uh, the um, in um, I got in touch with the pain of living, you know. And I think you know until I came to um, AA, I did not know about the pain of living. But I think all of you in this room know when I talk about what the pain of living is about. And that's the pain that we experience going through life when we're alone and isolated. And I'll always remember when I first came to the first AA meeting that somebody said, you know, I never had to feel alone anymore. 
And I'm so grateful that I heard that because I think that's a, uh, you know, we d I don't hear it in the promises, but it's, you know, I have not felt, the only th I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I did uh, have a six-month relapse, and during that six months, I felt alone again. And, um, but getting back to my story, I started uh, moonlight, and I started using Demerol at a place where I was moonlighting. And I don't remember saying, well, I'm in pain, and therefore I need this Demerol, but I did know that that Demerol would relieve uh, the pain I was experiencing. But by that time, there was really no one in my life that I could share what was going on in my life about. And I very quickly became addicted to Demerol, started stealing Demerol at the hospital, got caught, and uh, really was, uh, was fired from my residency at the start of my um, third year OBGYN. We had a geographic trip across town to Crawford Long Hospital in Atlanta and uh, just worked in the clinic for a while and stayed away from drugs for a little while. Uh, during that time, I divorced my first wife, started uh, kind of using the PDR IV, more or less. If it said it was uh, possibly addicting or sedating, then I tried it. And any drug that was on the market before 1980, I have used one way or another. And uh, I won't get into too much of my drunkalog, but just uh, kind of identify, you know, I've used pentothal rectally, I've used nitrous oxide and cyclopropane, filling up a balloon and then inhaling it back in my call room. Uh, and every other drug that was injectable, I've injected it into my body. It's a miracle that I'm alive that I even injected uh, vodka, which uh, really doesn't make much sense and paragoric too. And I think that the only amazing thing when I think about some of those times is the fact that I'm still alive um, and uh, still uh, in reasonable decent health. I got married a second time. I married a nurse at that time. There's no question I needed a nurse to take care of me. Our relationship was built on poor health. Either she was in poor health or I was in poor health. And uh, that lasted a, a few years. A worked in the family practice up in North Georgia for a couple of years as a geographic cure and uh, uh, then uh, came back to Atlanta, finished up my OBGYN residency and actually started to practice in south of Atlanta in uh, solo practice. Uh, during that time I started writing prescriptions for Demerol and uh, for my patients and using it myself and uh, during that time I had a call from the DEA or from the state investigating board who came to my office and took my license and DEA number and gave me a choice, you know. He said you can either go into treatment or go to jail. And uh, it didn't take too long to figure out which one of those I'd prefer. This was in 1972. Uh, they gave me the option to go into the state uh, mental hospital in uh, Milledgeville at that time, which really had no drug treatment program. The, the deal was I'd go in there and work for three months for the state for free, and then they'd say I'd been through their program. And, looked around and found that there really were only two places in the country in 1972 that were treating drug addicts, and that was in Lexington, Kentucky, and Fort Worth. And I signed a commitment to go up to Lexington, Kentucky, went up there for six and a half months. Uh, six and a half months, I did not hear about a 12-step program. Both people that had been there before and after uh, were exposed to 12-step program. I had, this was when Nixon was trying to find the cure for drug addiction. And we had milieu therapy and occupational therapy and work therapy. You know, that's what this workaholic needed was more work therapy. They had me, uh, you know, I washed cars, worked in the psychology department, uh, giving out tests to, to the new. First, for that six months, it was the first time I'd slowed down since I had uh, 
been 15 years old, because it at least got me in touch a little bit with myself. Stayed, came out of that uh, program and made a, I had a two-year commitment to go to aftercare, where we went every month, every week, and uh, gave a urine um, for uh, drugs. And during that time, the urine, they really weren't checking for alcohol, and that was during the time I said, well, maybe drinking wasn't so bad after all. I had uh, gotten drunk a few times at some meetings, but really had not approached it uh, with the vigor that I went from that point on. And from uh, 73 to um, 79, uh, I quit. You know, I'd used drugs until I worried about my drug use and worried about getting caught. And then I would quit and drink drink alcohol until people around me started worrying about my alcohol intake. And I convinced myself that I had control to quit. You know, all I was doing was changing. There's no question in my mind that, uh, you know, this, during that time I, had, I was fortunate only to have one DUI. I was trying to stay away from drugs that would uh, get me in trouble with, uh, bring my, that were, not, that were not controlled at that time. In 19, um, I divorced my second wife in 1978. I married my present wife, Judith, and uh, she knew I drank a little bit. She knew that I took some sleeping pills a little bit, but she had no idea what she was getting into, and it wasn't very long until she realized that these things were not going in the way she had her honeymoon dream she had thought about. Well, I, prom I promised her I'd quit drinking when we got married, and I did for two days. I, you know, that was <laughs> and, uh, in fact, she offered me a nullman on our honeymoon. That's how <laughs> upset she was about it. And um, I'm not sure why, if, if I hadn't been, I'm not sure why I didn't take her up on it at the time. The, um, six months later, uh, she'd gone to Concerned Persons Workshop, and uh, she set up a kind of a mini intervention at my home with and her. And when my 15-year-old son looked me in the eye and told me how he felt when I was in a blackout and being very... Uh, argumentative and loud and verbally abusive, I knew how he felt. It's exactly the way I'd felt when I was 15. And I made a commitment at that time that I would uh, go into treatment. Uh, I was aware of Doug Talbot's program. I'd actually referred a physician from our hospital to the previous program, and I'd kind of kept an eye on the program. But I wanted to, uh, you know, I started looking for an easier, softer way. You know, there was some 10-day treatments and this type of thing. A very wise man, uh, a psychiatrist I was seeing at the time, suggested I go out and talk to Doug about his treatment program. And I went out there in uh, August of um, 1979 and um, made a commitment to go into their program September the 7th of 1979. Went through the uh, program and um, ended up uh, kind of approaching recovery as a, uh, like I did a lot of the school courses, you know, just get the book, study it, try to figure out how you can get credit for what you'd already done. Did not get me a sponsor. I did not uh, really work the steps except what we had in our program. Uh, I stayed sober with just going to meetings for about six months. And, uh, but after six months, I relapsed on um, drugs I stole at the hospital, uh, anesthetic drugs where I kept the uh, small hospital where I was working. And during six months, I uh, used drugs intermittently. My wife knew things were crazy again. We'd had a great, you know, that first six months had been great. Things were honest at home and I was, but during that six months, the chaos came back in the family. 
Uh, actually, I came to this my first IDA meeting in December. I mean, in August of 1980. I was not honest at that time. I did not, you know, say I was using. And but I, you know, I remember I, uh, the, the newcomers banquet. Somebody, a urologist, getting up and introducing himself as a pissed-off urologist. And uh, I really should have gotten up and said I was a screwed-up gynecologist. But I didn't, wasn't honest enough to say that that day. Uh, um, just a month later, uh, my wife confronted me about why I wasn't picking up a, uh, having a birthday and having a blue chip. And I confessed my uh, fact I'd been using for six months, made a commitment to pick up a white chip that night. I went to a meeting at 8 o'clock and actually got beeped out of the meeting to deliver a baby. Fortunately, I had a meeting at 11 o'clock that night at the Navigal Land. I went back and picked up my last white chip. And I am so grateful that I'm in a member of uh, IDAA and a member of AA. The uh, only reason I'm married today is because I heard to Judith is the fact that I heard at a meeting about two or three months later that uh, you don't get divorced for two years in AA when you're sober. And I'm glad I heard it that way because uh, our family life was chaos for that first two years. In fact, when we talk, people talk, ask us how long we've been married, we'd say we don't count the first three years. Because that first two years was very, very difficult, very, very, coming to this meeting was very, very painful for both of us to see families that were happy and we were unhappy. We were still trying to find our uh, ability to communicate. You know, she would say it's raining outside and I would hear she's fussing about something that's uh, due to the rain. And we saw a lot, we saw a marriage counselor. In fact, one of our commitments is to never make our last uh, appointment with our marriage counselor. In fact, our last marriage counselor retired, so we're going to have to find us another one to wear, wear them out. The, um, I can't say enough about what the uh, AA program has meant to me. And one of the things I did when I picked up my last white chip, I made a commitment. I knew the program of that. I'd seen people come into the program and get sober and start to have a light in their eyes and get better. And so I made a commitment, and I did my first, fourth, and fifth step within a month after I picked up my last white chip. I went ahead and did a, a six, seven, eight, and nine that year, and for the first eight years I was sober, I did a fourth and fifth step every year. My sponsor was doing that, and I only found out later he waited 10 years before he started doing it. But I started doing it from the beginning, and it certainly has helped me a great deal. And I can stand up in front of you and tell you, you know, I had, when I came into the, in the program, I was isolated, alone, Felt like nobody had ever experienced what I had experienced. Today, I, I have shared everything in my life with somebody in the program. In fact, uh, most of the things in my life I share with at least 300 men. Part of my recovery program is I go to Atlanta Men's Workshop, which uh, meets twice a year. I've been running a program on sex and sobriety, and I've sh shared my experience and my strength not, and hope not only about sexual things but about relationships. And I've learned at this meeting by talking to other men, you know, how do you act like a married man? You know, I had no really true role models. You know, the only thing, you know, between, between John Wayne and Fathers Knows Best, you know, that was the role models. It's through talking with other men and finding out, having them come back and say, well, what you said last year helped me a whole lot. And I always ask myself, well, what did I say last year? Because, <laughs> uh, one, I mean, I don't remember. And two... Uh, a lot of times they hear things I didn't say to begin with. And uh, one of the most important things that a man came back and says is to act like a married man. 
you know, it's that fake it till you make it. Act like a married man until you know, and, you ha and sometimes you have to ask people, well, how does a married man act in this situation? What does a married man do in this situation? Well, two big pieces of advice my first sponsor gave me was when I was doing my eighth and ninth step and talking about making amends uh, to my uh, ex-wives, he said, well, there's no way you can really, unless you, if you owe them money or things and pay them the money or things that you owe them. But if you just talk about the emotional turmoil and the pain and suffering that you cause these women, there's no way you can go back to them without opening up a can of worms. He said, give 110% to your present marriage. Give everything you've got to your present wife. Let, and let that be the way you make amends for your present, past uh, wives. And that's been a great uh, thing for me. It's been a thing that's really helped our relationship very much. The other thing he said was to act as if you're interested in what your wife is doing until you become interested in what she's doing. And that's been really uh, a very big benefit. You know, she, Judith was interested in photography and, and raising uh, roses, and uh, I've become very interested in both of those things. It's something that we can enjoy and uh, share together. The One of the most um, Important things for me, I think, in recovery now is the people that I sponsor and working with in the program. And the, I don't think I think everyone here that sponsored anybody and seen people come in and feeling lonely and alone and be able to show them the way that you've walked and be able to see them grow uh, through the program really is a uh, a powerful um, thing. The uh, there's been you know. The, uh, you know, the, when I first came into the program, everybody said life, you know, things get better. And I heard better so much, you know, in my own alcoholic mind, though, when people said better, I thought easier. You know, I thought, you know, when people said things get better, I thought, well, they get easier. Things do not get easier in life. Things do not get easier in, in recovery. But things sure do get better. They get very much better. You know, there have been lots of things that I've gone through in recovery. When I was about two, uh, two or three years sober, at one time my father was in the ICU on Haldol for an ICU psychosis for his COPD disease, his chronic lung disease. At the same time, my middle son, Bill, was in the hospital at Emory in the psychiatry department for his schizophrenia. And I literally would go by and see my father at one hospital and then go to a meeting and then go to see my son at the other hospital. And it was the program and talking to people at meetings that helped me get through that, to be able to be the father, to be the son that I needed to be in this situation when things were not going the way I planned it, were not, were not going the way I wanted it to be. My, uh, in 1985... My oldest son, Stephen, the one that uh, actually was partly responsible for me get, getting into treatment, uh, came back from uh, California where his, his, his mother had given him his whole year's tuition for his second year at Stanford, and he'd uh, spent it all on cocaine uh, before Christmas, and came back, and uh, we had him admitted for, to a uh, treatment center. And he did real well for a while, and he got started back in... Uh, school and was going to Georgia Tech and he was making uh, C's and D's at Georgia Tech and this is a boy that was on 98th percentile on his SAT scores and he asked me for some money 
for his next quarter's tuition. And I told Steve, I said, it's, you know, I thought he had relapsed at the time. Later on, I found out he had not relapsed. But I told him, I said, no, I'm not going to finance you goofing off. I said, you know, you have more skills than this. You should be able to do better. I felt like at the time that was the right thing to do. But a month later, I got a letter from him telling me how I was responsible for everything bad that ever happened in his life. It was a very uh, angry letter and uh, very, um, um, very much a uh, hateful letter from my son. Um, and the worst part of it was two weeks later, he disappeared. Two weeks later, his mother called me and told me he was gone, that he'd taken the, the car where he'd been driving was gone. Uh, I thought, you know, and I didn't know if he was in the trunk of a car at the airport. I didn't know if he'd been using, you know, been selling. I did not know. You know, and for two years, I did not know where my son was. Um, about, well, we started hearing about, about a year, we started getting some, my ex-wife started getting some phone calls from California about some tickets that were showing up on, on their computers for this car. So we kind of figured out he'd at least driven the car back to uh, California or somebody had. Two years later, about a week before Father's Day, Steve called me up and told me he was okay, he was in California, and that um, things were going okay. I um, ended up making some geographic cures. In fact, I, in 1988, I thought I wanted to work in the addiction program. I went out and worked in uh, Southern California and, and for Kaiser for two years. And during that time, I got a chance to get to see my son again uh, and visit with him. And for a long time, uh, I continued to ask him how he was doing about his addiction. I knew he was back into his drugs and alcohol at that time. And um, I was going to a lot of Al-Anon meetings. I'd started going to Al-Anon meetings when he first, in 1985, and really for five years I went to an Al-Anon meeting every uh, week. And finally I got the message of the Al-Anon, and I realized my son didn't need a, me to be a sponsor or an intervener. My son needed a father. And I quit asking him whether he was um, still using or not. Certainly our relationship improved, and not too much... About 1990-91, he called me up and told me he had 90 days clean. And he just celebrated nine years uh, in February. And uh, he has gone to this men's retreat with me three or four times and be able to give him his, uh, his, his five-year chip at that workshop has really, really been a powerful thing because I've been able to communicate with him as we only can communicate with people that are in the program. And he's really... I've uh, gotten him a sponsor. He's working the steps. It's been one of the gifts I've gotten my son back because of this. Um, I think that the today, you know, I'm married to my best friend. I'm just so grateful I heard don't get, don't get divorced for two years because Judith and I have a unique relationship in that, uh, you know, I, we're able to share. When we first came into the program, uh, we, we had to sit down and decide whether we, what we could talk about. And there were only two things we could even talk about the first two years. And that we could talk about clouds as long as we didn't talk about what they looked like. And we could talk about birds as long as we had a bird book there to help this, with the arguments about what, they, what kind of bird it was. And that was it. You know, and even to this day when things get a little testy, uh, we'll say, aren't the clouds pretty? And that's kind of a flag, like a yellow flag. You know, that's, uh, somebody needs to back up a little bit. Uh, when the first two years, I think we probably, I, I haven't sat down and counted, we probably had a few good days a year. 
now we have a few bad hours a year. And it really, you know, and I think for, I know if you're new in the program, I know that it's, you're going through a lot of painful things with your life. And I think just, just stay in there. Keep, keep coming back and keep working the program. The, uh, I'm still, uh, I, I have still very active in OBGYN. I'm still working full time at the present time. I'm active in a professional group that meets in my office uh, every week. And uh, I really, you know, if you don't have a meeting in your town where you go, start one. All it takes is a coffee pot in a room. All it takes is a coffee pot in a room. And I've been responsible for starting a meeting in Pennsylvania, in Atlanta and Pennsylvania and also in Carrollton, Georgia. And just hang in there. You know, you may be by yourself or with just one other person. And I found that, you know, it doesn't, if, if there's one other person there, then you've got as many as you need. And some, some of the best meetings I've been to is where there have been two of us sitting in a room sharing honestly about what's going on. The other thing I'd recommend very strongly, and that is that um, for the first eight years in Atlanta, I had lunch every week with a fellow physician in the program. And we got where we really got to know each other. You know, put some time in your schedule for work to meet. The other thing... The other most important thing I did, I want to share that, I'll be closing, and that is the third time I did a fourth step, I did what I call my professional fourth and fifth step. Now I looked at how my character defects, my addiction had affected my education, my training, and my practice. And then I took that with another physician in the program. Until that day, I had always felt like a third-year medical student, less than. Everybody else knew all this information, and I knew this much. Since that day I did that fifth step with this other physician, I know I, my, the amount of knowledge I have has not gotten any big, bigger. What I know has not gotten any bigger, but it's okay. You know, I don't have to know everything. I just need to know what I need to know and know that I'm okay with that. And I don't have to know everything. You know, we can all, in medicine we can always think about the things we don't know. But now I focus on the things I do know and try to increase that knowledge and keep up with my specialty. And I, that really uh, has made me feel okay being a physician. Cause it makes me feel okay being who I am and what I am. And I want to thank you all, all very much for letting me be here. Our next person to share is Pete. <coughs> My name is Peter, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, a grateful alcoholic. I was an episodic drinker. I never drank tremendously uh, frequently, but when I did, I did it to excess. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to focus a lot of time <clears throat> on that. Uh, I used to do ER medicine in East Texas and Louisiana, Mississippi, and I would work for sometimes three to four weeks at a time, come on home, and be off for about four or five days, and that when I got home, I really did it. Uh, I would try to work out all the frustrations of the previous three or four weeks at one time, 
and I, I lived out in the wilderness, and so therefore I had these raccoons that would come up and welcome me home, and I would feed them and get drunk at the same time. And uh, got to the point where I could kill a fifth or a liter, you know, basically in one night. And I remember, you know, I'd wake up the next morning and say, well, I couldn't have, you know, all of that, you know. And then I would think to myself, but the raccoons don't drink. <laughs> and <clears throat> it got to a period where, you know, I began to worry. I said, hey, God, I know, I know I can't be doing my pancreas any good, you know. And the steatorrhea would prove that for the next couple of days, you know. But anyway, um, it got to the point where uh, I didn't trust myself. I would take a certain amount of liquor from the bottle. I would say, okay, fine, I will drink this and that's all, and I'd take the rest of it over to and leave it with a friend. And um, that worked for a while. And then at the same time, however, if I ever got involved with other people, um, about three times within about six months, I uh, embarrassed myself and... Uh, the last time I really hurt somebody verbally, you know, uh, who was one of my better friends. And it took me about two or three days to work through that. And I had said to somebody um, in my practice in the service that it was, you know, time for them to quit smoking as we both sat there blowing smoke in each other's face. But once again, uh, I could, you know, I said, hey, I think it's your time to quit. I said, my time is going to come, but my time's just not here yet. But anyway, I remembered that particular conversation with that patient when, after the third time, I had embarrassed myself. And I said, hey, this thing is out of control. You know, it's time for me to quit. And uh, so anyway, I had some time off, and I flew off and visited a friend in Hawaii and went to an AA meeting over there. Uh, they were pretty packed meetings, so after I had to go about three or four meetings before I actually got a chance to talk. But anyway, I finally got up, and I was going to have to say something in a hurry, and that's all, because the time was running out, and I just said, basically, I guess I'm an alcoholic, cried, thought, man, oh, my God, this was the end of the world, or whatever. And uh, anyway, came back, and um, just didn't drink, but anyway, was visited, was visited by a friend from Houston, uh, who was AA, and uh, so we drove all over East Texas there for two or three days, going to AA meetings, and... Um, because, uh, anyway, went to this one meeting, and uh, there were ten people there. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, this, you know, these people are talking about real stuff. Um, to me, I mean, my behavior was, hey, let me tell you the latest joke I've heard, you know, and try to behave in some way that I would impress you or that you would like me, you know. And it had nothing to do with who I was. I'd ask you your name, but if I remembered it, I mean, I was lucky. Uh, usually I have to ask you two or three times for your name. But anyway, uh, at this meeting, nobody was dancing for anybody. Nobody was, you know, playing, let me impress you if I can. Um, everybody was being extremely real, heavy, and I loved it. Um, I remember leaving that meeting, and I could remember everybody's name that had been at that meeting. The next night, we went to another small town about 35 miles away again, and it was the same thing. And I thought, my God, this is my way home. This is real. I felt like, my God, this is what Christ must have been talking about when he said, whenever you to gather together in my name, I'll be there with you. 
I feel more God. I had studied to be a priest, and uh, I've always been a monastery follower. Or you know, when I go by, I love to go there for two or three days and just love the silence of it. But I thought to myself, you know, there's more God in, <laughs> in these meetings than I think I've ever seen in some of these monasteries. But anyway, um, so I remember talking to, to my friend. I said, you know, I said I love this thing. I said I'm not sure if I'm an alcoholic because I haven't drank like some of the other people here. And he said, well, he said, you don't have to be an alcoholic. All you have to be is somebody who wants to quit drinking. I said, well, damn it all, that's I'm home. I had been looking for God. In fact, I really related to the gal at the international uh, meeting last year when she said, you know, uh, I was sober when I got here, but I wanted sobriety. Because I started going through my life. I had given up God, you know, long before, um, because at least the God that I was raised with didn't make any sense to my life. Um, the fact that this is the spiritual odyssey, uh, I mean, is a real good topic for me, because basically that's what I think I found when I came to AA. Uh, the end of the trail, I remember, uh, I mean, that's, I think, a great, once again, a great uh, symbol for this meeting. Um, I remember going to Yellowknife in... Uh, Northwest Territories, up on top of Alberta. And I remember saying to somebody, I wanted to come to some place where, you know, this is the end of the road, because you can't go any further than Yellowknife. And, uh, and this fellow said, he said, Peter, is this not the end of the road? This is the beginning of the road. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's how I see AA, you know, is that uh, I don't think any of us, at least myself, I didn't say, my girl, you know, what I want to do in life is I can't wait to qualify as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And yet at the same time, <clears throat> when I look at my life today, this is where it really began, because the rest was a running away. Um, the rest was a, let me impress you if I can. And yet at the same time, if I did impress you, I really didn't, didn't want you to get close to me, because basically you found out, hey, that was really not me. I had developed a Mardi Gras personality. I had 10,000 faces. If you didn't like this one, I could throw another one at you. And all that went back to far before I ever began drinking. You know, I was doing stuff, you know, to moderate my pain of living long before I did alcohol. I can go back to three and a half, four, four and a half years of age when I knew I was selling myself out. And, uh, you know, I think those times of when I... Um, tried to please mommy or please daddy or please anybody at the expense of myself were the beginning of my my disease you know in other words I wasn't good enough you know the impression that I had was hey I was first I was God's first mistake in 15 billion years you know, and that was good humility you know at the various religious situations that I was involved in but I mean that's the way I lived my life and that's the way I you know and I think all I did through the years is I changed mommies you know I changed mommy in high school to the coach to the peer groups to the to the admirals to the generals the military service to the professors you know once again trying to impress somebody because once again I was you know I didn't like myself didn't know who I was but I was convinced I was a mistake maybe if I save all of Africa for the Pope I'll be okay you know by becoming a priest Maybe by becoming a doctor, okay, fine. Maybe if I save all of Africa from malaria, maybe I'll be okay. I remember thinking that particular thought when I decided to become, try to see if I could become a doctor. And uh, like somebody said at the last meeting in Pittsburgh, uh, I thought when I graduated from medical school, all my problems would be over with. 
and I mean, to a great extent, I, I can really identify with that type of thinking because once again, I was, it was not a matter of graduating from medical school, it was a matter of graduating and becoming, a, you know, a, a human being of some respect or at least some equality. I was so convinced once again that I was God's first mistake in 15 billion years. Anyway, um, when I came to AA, um, I didn't think I had an ego problem. And yet at the same time, however, now I know that's all I did have, you know. Um, about three years into the program, I remember driving back one night and I thought to myself, hey, I don't think they understood what I said when I said that. And then the light bulb moment went off in my head. Uh, did I understand what I said when I said that? And, you know, like I say, that was a light bulb moment. I've analyzed and superanalyzed or whatever, etc. And like I say, I can go back. And I think it's all, you know, to me it was a, uh, my life has been a disease of low self-esteem, saying God made a mistake. And I think the process is, uh, man, hey, to get back and say, hey, God did not make a mistake. Uh, that I am here for a particular purpose and that I am supposed to live that particular purpose as I think all of us are. And at the same time, I was medicating. Thank God I had alcohol and all the various things that I medicated with. I medicated with prestige. I medicated with education. I medicated with property, good-looking girlfriends or whatever, etc. But it was all a manipulation, <clears throat> a manipulation to cover me up. And today I'm closer to the fact that, hey, I don't have to cover me up anymore. I've really got to let me out and just be the one that I'm supposed to be. And then when I become myself, I don't need to medicate. To me, the most important part of that first step is the second part. My life was unmanageable. And that's the reason I did alcohol. That's the reason I did all this stuff. Um, I was covering up. I was manipulating. I was running. Um, and... Uh, uh, as somebody said at one meeting, um, you know, no matter what it took to get here, it was worth it because it got, to, it got me to a place where, hey, I could become honest. This is the only place in the world I can go and say all of this bad stuff, and I'm not going to be attacked by about 30, 30 messiahs. You know, we're going to come and try to straighten me out, but everybody will just say, hey, thanks for sharing. I get a little bit closer to myself. I get a little bit closer to my realness. And when I get closer to my realness and that one that I am supposed to be, you know, Christ said, I am the one the Lord has said. I think I'm the one the Lord has said me to be, as I think each of you are. And then I don't have to, you know, be superior to you or inferior to you. Hey, we can all walk side by side because your message is not my message. You know, we're all each other's teachers. We're all each other's students. Um, and I wouldn't have found this if it hadn't been for AA. You know, the challenge is, like I say, I look at my early, my early heritage or cultural background, parental background. I mean, you know, I, I became just exactly what they raised. I mean, that's what I was exposed to. Um, and I wasn't stupid. I mean, you know, I reacted to that environment. But the thing is, hey, my parents were, they were given that same environment by the whole cultural heritage. As they say, hey, we're all victims of victims. So my parents only did what in the world, you know, they had been exposed to. And they probably did a better job of it than their parents. And, and I know myself, hey, you know, <clears throat> I have just learned from all of this. I'd be a better parent today than I was, you know, 30 years ago. As a result, because I, th I think, once again, children need nurturing. I don't know if they need all that discipline. They need to hear yes. You know, they need to hear yes to themselves. I was in China about six, eight months ago. 
And uh, they don't send their children to school until they're eight years old. And I thought, hey, whoopee, give a child a chance to become who they are, have a sense of selfhood before we push them off into a school where they're listening to some teacher and start then trying to get their stars rather than their own stars, you know? But so at, therefore we have a concept of, you know, of where we're going, who we are or whatever. So at, therefore, I can, you know, I go into Walmart and I listen to parents talk to children. And I think, my God, I can almost, I can tell you who's going to have to be an alcoholic or, an, or a drug addict or some particular type because of the way they're being talked to. But anyway, um, alcoholism has given me a chance to meet real people. And once again, hey, I'm home. You know more about me right now as a result of these few minutes than, you know, than my family knows about me. Because I can tell you honest things, you know. And I can listen, I can learn from you. And so, and like I said, hey, this has given me a chance to get in contact with my soul. Really begin to, you know, to fill the hole in my soul that can only be filled by myself. I mean, there's not enough booze to do it. There's not enough women to do it. There's not enough prestige to do it. There's not enough education to do it. There's not enough whatever, you know, that has got to be filled, I think, by myself and that is being filled by a return to a relationship with the God of my own understanding not the God out there but the God inside of me and uh, I wouldn't have found that if it hadn't been for this program I'd still be out there playing being a so-called success and not even knowing that I was lost um, and the other thing about it, hey, wherever I go in the world, I can, go to, I can go to a meeting. You know, whether I'm in the Yukon or I'm in Mexico or El Salvador or, or wherever. You know, I can go in immediately where I'm, I'm talking about real stuff with real people, looking at one another, and once again, friends for life. So therefore, like I say, hey, this is the beginning of the road as far as getting closer to who I really am. No longer playing, hey, let me impress you if I can. Knowing that there is no place to go when I'm running. There's no geographical cure other than the one inside, becoming the one who I was really sent here to be. I'd just like to close um, with a, um, a poem that I wrote, and, I, and I'd like to maybe use two poems. But anyway, <clears throat> in the creation plan, each of us is marvelous, fantastic, okay, enough. Designed by God in his divine idea of the universe, maybe billions or more years ago, his plan included each of us to do our part. I must be courageous, you must be courageous to do our part in his masterpiece. Mine is not yours, yours is not mine. We must search deep within ourselves for God's voice, his message for our separate selves. I am, you are, just as we are to be. Today, asking for courage is my prayer, so that I, we, will not let God's plan down. I, you, must listen to, do our, to our deep internal voice, God speaking to us, and no one but ourselves can tell us what he is saying. I ask for the gift of courage that I, you, listen and do our special part in the creational masterpiece and one other one like I say I think it was low self-esteem and I got that from my cultural heritage once again however 
not blaming anybody, because as long as I'm in blame, I'm saying God made a mistake, and God does not make mistakes in my opinion today. So therefore, it was an opportunity, a challenge to move beyond and become a different type of human being myself, so that therefore I relate to a child as a nurturing adult, you know, and I relate as a physician, not as a physician, but as a as a human being who happens to be a physician. But may we look again at parenting. My father, may I be exposed to new systems of thought in order that I might consider in greater depth to what I was exposed and what I could have been exposed as I began my life. Guide me to have understanding for those through whom I came. Yet let me not be blind as to the other ways from which I could have. Let me waste not my life in bitterness and blame. Moreover, may I grapple with this day to change those archaic thoughts that hindered me from your service with my life so that my children will not be so destroyed and hindered in a like manner. May we respect one another, parent for other parent, child for other child, parent for child and child for parent. Let us look again and see better ways for rearing the children of God so that they may become the flowers the creation was, has sent. Yes, each of us is a flower, each. When their time has been expired, and the, <clears throat> may they be grateful to me that God placed them in my garden. Therefore, help me, my Father, to nurture and guide them to become the ones that you have sent them to be. May I remember they are not my children, However, they are the sons and daughters of life itself, your children for your purpose, not mine. Thank you very much.